Well, this morning uh, we are continuing uh, our quest uh, to answer the question that I posed last week, and that is, what is love? Where we understand that the scriptures are very clear that we as Christians ought to love one another. But, but it leaves us with the obvious question, what, what does this love look like? And this is a question answered in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And it'll be good for you to open your Bible there if you haven't already. But before we get into the text, let's pray. Father, we do thank you that you have spoken. What a precious gift your word is to us. And we ask this morning and into this afternoon that you would help us to understand Uh, that the preached word and that we would uh, be receptive to it and that the spirit would work the word deep into our lives for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have been a Christian for any period of time, I can guarantee that you have heard sermons, you have read books and blogs, or you've had discussions about how we as Christians are to handle the difficult times of life. How it is that we are to endure the inevitable trials and troubles. And this is a subject that you and I desperately need to consider. Because difficulties and distresses are inevitable. They will happen. And there are great spiritual dangers lurking in the alleys of life's darkness ready to pounce upon struggling Christians. And hence, we need scriptural truth breathed into such situations. But there are also equally dangerous spiritual snares when things are smooth and easy. When good things are unfolding within our life. Our our reaction to good things in our life and in the lives of others is often a revealing diagnostic of the quality And the quantity of our love. The three negative qualities listed in in verse 4. They are inconsistent with love. And they tend to get dredged up to the surface when good things unfold. When the blessings of God rain down abundantly. It is these times that provide the perfect soil and conditions for the hideous weeds of envy and pride to overtake the love garden. And unfortunately, these noxious weeds can even overtake a local church. And they are detrimental because they suck out the life, the vibrancy and the effectiveness of a church. Because here is the thing, the envious and the proud Don't love others like they ought to because they're too full of love for themselves. Self-love and self-absorption lead to envy and pride. That that is the hideous fruits of the self-consumed tree. So let's endeavor to understand that these negative and detrimental qualities so that by God's grace we can quickly identify them when they're present in our life and pluck them out before they completely take over. So we will consider both envy and pride under three headings, the definition, an illustration, and the application. So firstly, love is not envious. 
Envy and jealousy are interesting concepts because they can be both positive and negative. Not all jealousy is sin. Okay, hypothetically, if I was giving another woman too much attention, Emma should be jealous. Okay, and, and that wouldn't be sinful. Okay, jealousy is something that describes God within the Bible. And yet most of our envy and jealousy is not righteous. It's a little bit like anger. When you talk about anger, someone will inevitably say, yes, Brennan, but what about righteous anger? Okay, and that's true, but 99.99% of our anger is certainly not righteous, and that's probably the same as envy. You know, another interesting point is this. Okay, as Christians, we subconsciously make categories of sins. And one such category is what you and I would call acceptable or tolerable sins. Okay, we, we wouldn't publicize that. That would be very unspiritual. Okay, but there, there are behaviors and attitudes that you and I, we know they are wrong, and yet we don't think of them as that big of a deal. Okay, it's only, it's only a small sin. And by the way, that, that's terrible theology. That's wrong theology. Because all sin is hideous, and we should hate it all, because Jesus had to die for even what we call the small sins. Okay, understand that. But, but if we understand envy as the Bible presents it, we would not trivialize it. It's not, it's not a little sin, because left unchecked, it will completely overcome, and it will lead to all kinds of hideous sin. Okay, envy is like a floodgate. Okay, let envy in. And all kinds of gross behaviors and attitudes will come out. Envy is like a white ant. It will eat away at our moral fiber and convictions and can end up committing all kinds of terrible sins. So with that warning, let's try and understand it. And we'll start with a definition. The Greek word translated envy, envieth, can be understood both positively and negatively with the context Governing the interpretation. It's the same Greek word. Positively, it speaks of zeal, of eagerly desiring. But negatively, which is how it's used in the verse before us, this speaks of a strong passion of jealousy or a burning displeasure at the success or achievements of somebody else. It is the pain that we feel over someone else's prosperity or position. Have you ever felt that? You thought, why isn't that me? Why, why is that person being promoted? Well, it is, according to one writer, a spirit of dissatisfaction with and opposition to the prosperity and happiness of others as compared with our own. Now, Envy will ask the question, why them and not me? Envy usually starts with, with discontentment. That's where it will begin which stems from a deeply held conviction that we always get the raw end of the deal. Have you ever thought about that? you thought like that? Your life is just unfair. Nothing ever works out for me. Okay, with that, discontentment comes. And then resentment is just around the corner. And then discontentment plus resentment will equal envy. And envy usually has three components, and they are a wicked progression. So number one, this is where it starts. I want something that someone else has. Then the next step, number two, I wish they didn't have it. And number three, what can I do to get it or to take it away? Okay, that, that's the progression. That's where it ends up. 
As one scholar put it, it is a, a deficient emotion, a painful awareness that others are superior in one way or another, and you either desire what they have or wish they didn't have it, or somehow could lose it, and you don't mind helping out if the opportunity arises to take it. And if we are perfectly honest with ourselves, this is a real struggle. This is something we all wrestle with, envious of the material possessions of others, wishing that you had that house or or that car or, or that boat or whatever it may be for you. We can be jealous of the achievements of others. The opportunities granted to other people, the acknowledgement that that somebody else always seems to receive, or the position that someone else occupies. You you wanted to be the coordinator in your office. We can be envious over someone else's physical appearance. Gifts and talents that somebody else possesses, the marriage, children or family of somebody else. In other words, in our fallen condition, we can and we do get envious at just about anything. Any inequality, whether real or imagined, can be a source of envy. So often we, we cannot even hear about the advancement and success of even a friend or a family member without feeling that the pain of envy shooting within One of our siblings gets better marks than we ever did. Our our friend gets the job that we so desperately wanted. Our brother has more talent. Our sister has more money. And these feelings of envy that they bubble away within, particularly if we feel as though we were more deserving. So this is a universal struggle. And once you are in its grip, it's basically unending. Because understand this, there is always someone a little more smarter, a little more rich, a little more successful, someone who is more popular, more beautiful, more talented, and you can end up getting stuck in this constant envious state. Okay, I I used to be jealous of Brendan because he was smarter than me, not that that would be true. Okay, now I've increased my knowledge, I'm smarter than Brendan, guess what? Now there's someone else who is smarter than me. Again, okay, this is a vicious cycle. And unfortunately, this this deadly disease is often prevalent within the church. And that's a great tragedy. And this was certainly the case at Corinth. If you flick back to verse 3 of chapter 3, Paul says, For ye are yet carnal, for whereas there is among you envying and strife and divisions, are ye not carnal and walk as men? So so this church, they're engulfed in envy which inevitably led to strife, disunity, and division. And one clear illustration of this within this church was in the realm of spiritual gifts. If you look back at verse 31 of chapter 12, Paul mentions coveting earnestly the best gifts. Now we need to understand that that is not a positive thing. Perhaps you've heard before, if you've read before, a preacher will say, you need to pursue the greatest gifts. You need to strive fervently for them. But that's not what this verse is talking about. Because Paul's whole point throughout this chapter is that God is sovereign of giving of gifts and that the people were to be content with what they had been given 
Okay, and use that gift within the body. Not, not strive to be another body part that they were not. Okay, if you are the hand, be the hand. Don't try and be the lungs. Okay, that's the analogy. So this verse, verse 31, is actually a statement of fact of what they were doing. Okay, okay, they were striving earnestly for, for, the, for the better gifts. And this was wrong. Okay, this was a bad thing because they were envying the gifts of others. Within the context, they all wanted the showy gifts like tongues. And there was jealousy extended to, toward those who were more gifted or, or who had gifts that, that I desperately wished to possess. Okay, that's what was happening within this church. And there is no reason to restrict this envy that had engulfed this church to merely gifts. It seems reasonable to assume that this was more far-reaching. Okay, the church was being eaten away by the, by the vicious white ants of envy. And we need to understand this. That this is not just an issue for Corinth. Okay, this is also an issue for Connell Park. This can happen right here. We can be envious of the gifts and talents of others. That, that we can't sing like somebody else. Or, or we can't preach or, or teach. Or we can get jealous of a position that, that you're not the pastor, you're not a deacon, you're not a ministry leader. We can be jealous of the success of another ministry. My ministry's got five people, this ministry's got 50. I can get jealous about that. We can be envious that somebody seems to get more attention and accolades than we do. That somebody else has more friends, is better looking, is more successful. Or corporately, we as a church can be jealous of other churches, their buildings, their pastors, their programs, and so on and so forth. So envy can be present right here in our church. In fact, the fire of envy scorches us Every day. This is a daily struggle. But Paul stresses that love is not envious. But rather love will rejoice in the good things that come upon others. Love does not begrudge the success, position, achievements and talents of another. But rather it rejoices and is delighted for that person. The loving person can be joyful when someone else is promoted, is praised, or elevated. When love sees someone who is popular, successful, beautiful, or talented, it is glad for them and never jealous. In fact, true love will be glad about the success, achievements, and abilities of others, even if they work against their own and are greater than their own. Okay, that is the essence of of love. Okay, let's now consider some illustrations. As I mentioned in the introduction, we can often tolerate envy and rate it as something that's—it's not really that serious. But that's certainly not the message of the Bible. Let me give you some negative illustrations to highlight its severity. It was envy of God that caused Satan. To rebel. It was envy of God that caused Eve to take the fruits. 
It was envy that produced the first murder. It so consumed Cain that he brutally and callously slew his own brother. It was envy that resulted in Joseph being thrown in the pit, sold into slavery. It was envy that was responsible for Daniel being callously thrown into the lion's den. And it was envy that put Jesus on the cross. Okay, with all, what all of these negative illustrations tell us is that envy is no small matter. And if left unchecked and untreated, it's a vicious cancer that grows rapidly and it can lead to all kinds of terrible wickedness and hence it needs to be eradicated. So please do not minimize envy or jealousy within your life. It's no small thing. Now for a a couple of positive illustrations, I want to think about John the Baptist for a moment. He was a famous preacher. He he had his own following, he had disciples, he had a successful ministry. Hundreds, probably thousands were baptized by him. But but this all changed as Jesus began his ministry. And and there was some tension amongst his disciples. They they got a little bit jealous. This is what they said, John 3.26. And they came unto John and said unto him, Rabbi, he that was with thee beyond Jordan, to whom thou bearest witness, behold, the same baptizeth, and all men come to him. They're a little bit upset, that they're a little bit envious. You know, John, before they all came to us, and now look, there's nobody, and everyone's over here getting baptized by Jesus' disciples. Do you remember John's response, famous words, he must increase, but I must decrease. That there was no envy from John. And humanly speaking, you could understand if he was a little bit jealous, couldn't you? But his love for Jesus meant that he was not jealous. He was willing to have no ministry if that exalted Christ. Another illustration is parents with their children. Usually that there is not jealousy if our children achieve higher than us. If they are more gifted, more successful, more talented. In fact, as a parent, you desire for your children to to be greater than you, to achieve more than you ever have, and you delight in that success. You're not envious of it. And this is what we are to be like in every relationship. And the final illustration, of course, is Jesus. Okay, think about this. Not once, okay, not once. Did he ever suffer from envy or jealousy in a sinful sense? That, that's staggering, isn't it? Okay, do, do we even go one day without struggling with this? And yet Jesus went his whole life without committing envy or jealousy once. Okay, that's, that's the glory of Christ. But it's even more staggering when we consider his lot in life. Okay, remember who Jesus is. Jesus is God. He's God in kind of God in the flesh. He is the king of kings. And yet he was born into poverty. He was born with animals laid in a putrid feeding trough. He was not raised in a palace. So throughout his life, often he had nowhere to lay his head. He had no money, no property. He was greatly misunderstood, unfairly treated, had so few followers, very few bowed down. How easy it would have been for him to be envious of Caesar. Here is this wicked man living in luxury, ruling and reigning the empire, the most powerful man. 
And yet here we have the King of Kings, Jesus Christ, the one who permitted Caesar to be on the throne, understand that. Living the type of life which was the exact opposite of what you would expect from a king. And yet despite all of this, there was not an ounce of jealousy, not a drop of envy. That there was no envy for the success, achievements, popularity or position of others. That's Jesus. Because he loves perfectly. And my friend, he is our model. But how, how does this apply? Well, practically speaking, true love rejoices. It's glad when others are promoted, even if that means it's ahead of us. It means being happy for the person that is more gifted and talented than us. It is joyful for the one who achieves more than we ever do, or for the one who occupies a position that we would so desperately love to occupy. And this applies to every realm of life. This is in the home, this is in the church, this is at work, this is in the world. But, but let's hone in on the church setting. True love will not be jealous when another ministry thrives and yours does not. It, it will not be envious of somebody else's giftedness, nor of the position that another occupies, nor the accolades that someone else receives, nor the material prosperity of a fellow believer, and so on and so forth. But rather, think think of Romans 12. The loving saint will rejoice with those who rejoice, even if that means we go without. It, It will rejoice when somebody else gets married, even if we're not. Or when somebody else has children and yet we can't. Or when somebody else gets the job and yet we can't seem to get one. I've been looking for two years, I can't get work. Or when somebody else gets into the university course and we didn't. Or when somebody is promoted at work and yet you haven't been promoted for for years. Love will rejoice in the health, wealth, prosperity, advancement, ease of life of others. Even if we don't have it. Okay, this is what it looks like. What about for us so corporately? Okay, we are to be envious of another church, one that has a nicer and bigger buildings than us, churches who have a bigger budget, hundreds more people, better programs, more gifted teachers, whatever it may be. Okay, in such situations, love will be happy and rejoice in what others have, even if we don't have or get it. This is real love. And here is the thing. We, we struggle with this vile and depraved affection constantly. Okay, we struggle with envy. We struggle with jealousy. Now, here, here, I'd like to offer some practical points to, to help free us from envy's grip. That, that will enable both the quantity and the quality of our love to grow. Okay, seven, seven quick points. Number one, uh, abstain from social media. Okay, this platform, it feeds envy. Okay, pictures and posts, many designed to invoke jealousy. Hence, if you have this struggle, consider getting off social media, whether for a period of time or perhaps for good. Number two, stop playing the comparison game, comparing what, what you have or who you are with someone else. Because if you play the comparison game, you, you can never win. 
Because as I said before, there's always someone smarter, richer, funnier, wiser, more successful, and so forth. Hence, it's pointless to compare. You just get stuck in this vicious cycle. Number three, avoid materialism. A lot of envy is fueled by materialistic attitudes. And often we struggle with jealousy because our focus and our goals, it's temporal. It's right now. It's chasing the house. It's chasing the car. It's chasing the money. It's chasing these temporal things rather than our focus being on eternal things. If you set your heart on heavenly treasure rather than earthly, this will help greatly with envy. Number four, repent of self-love. That the one who is constantly envious loves themselves more than others and perhaps even more than God. Envy shows that, that we are really more concerned about our own glory and our own kingdom than we are God's. Okay, love God and love others more than yourself. And be consumed with God's glory. Be consumed with God's kingdom. And this will overcome jealousy within our lives. Number four, practice gratitude. The Bible has an awful lot to say about being thankful. About being grateful. And we have so much to be thankful for, even if we feel as though it's less than the person next to us. But rather than focusing on what you don't have, Place the emphasis on what you do have and render praise to God for that. Okay, gratitude is a medicine that attacks this disease of envy. Number five, focus on giving, not getting. True love wants to give rather than receive. And Jesus is the perfect model of this. If we are more focused on giving, okay, what we can give someone else, then this will help to cure envy. Number six, pray for others. Pray that other people would be blessed abundantly and that God would give them great increase, even if it means we decrease. Okay, if you struggle with envy of a particular person, I encourage you pray for that person and pray that God would bless them abundantly, that God would exalt them, and this will start to change your heart. And number seven, trust God's sovereignty and providence. When you and I are envious, we are actually questioning and doubting God's plans and purposes. If we believe that God is in control, which I know I do, I trust you do, he has allowed and not allowed certain things to happen. And when we get jealous, we're questioning God. And we're actually declaring that, God, you've got this wrong. Why have you allowed it to happen to this person and not me? Isn't that the height of arrogance? But rather than envy, may we trust what God allows to happen and to whom it happens to, knowing that God is good and that God knows best. So there are some ways by God's grace, through the help of the Spirit, that, that we can overcome envy. And I encourage you to meditate upon the example of Jesus. Okay? He had every reason to be envious, and yet not once was he. Okay, Love envieth not and brethren as our love is like this it will lead to unity and harmony within the church which is a powerful advertisement for the gospel so may god help us with that secondly love is not
proud. Okay, if envy is the sinful response to good things in the life of others, pride is the sinful response when good things unfold in our life. And we need to be aware of the putrid pit of pride. Remember, God hates pride. It's included in the list of sins that he hates in the book of Proverbs. And really, pride is the root of all sin. And it's certainly contrary to love. It's completely incompatible. That's what the next verse says. Charity vaunteth not itself and is not puffed up. So let's consider a definition. These two two terms, they are similar. They fit together, but they are not synonymous. Okay, vaunteth not itself. It's not a phrase we use commonly. I don't think anyone would have said, stop vaunting yourself this week. That's not a phrase that I use. And uh, the the particular Greek term um, is only found here in the New Testament. But it speaks speaks of boasting, of bragging. It's exalting oneself. It's excessive self-promotion. It's going on and on and on about yourself, talking yourself up. And boasting can come in all different shapes and sizes. We can boast about what we have, our achievements, our positions, our gifts, our talents, who we know, what we know, spiritual insight, and so on. What it basically is, it's advertising yourself and making sure everyone realizes how great you are. And this was a problem in the church at Corinth. That there was the issue with people from different socioeconomic classes. Okay, that the rich were quick to remind the poor about this, about these classes in society. Now, then there was the problem in chapter 1. Oh, which leader are you following? Someone said, well, I'm following Paul. He's the apostle. And others like, no, no, I'm following Apollos. But then you have the super spiritual, hey, I'm following Jesus. Gazump, you and Gazump, you. Okay, this, this, was, this was an issue. It's pride. And then there was the issues with spiritual gifts, which we've talked about a lot. Okay, tongues was highly sought after. And anyone who possessed it was bragging that he or she was superior. And this all led to, to tension and disunity. And the solution was more love. Because love does not vaunt itself. It does not have to have the limelights. It doesn't need constant acknowledgments. It doesn't go fishing for compliments. It doesn't need to show off. It doesn't advertise one's own brilliance. It's not trying to constantly sell itself like you have to in a job interview. But rather it will commend and focus on others. Love is also not puffed up. And this is a very picturesque word. And it's a favorite word for Paul to use of the Corinthians. He uses this word six times throughout all of his epistles. And five of those occurrences is in this epistle. And it speaks of an inflated view of one's own importance. It's an exaggerated view of oneself, pumping up your own tires, if you like. In other words, it's pride. And and these two negative qualities, that they're closely related, but the difference seems to be this. Is not puffed up refers to an inward disposition, whereas vaunteth not itself refers to outward actions and attitudes. But it is because we are puffed up that we vaunt ourselves. But please understand this, okay? Love is incompatible with pride. 
With self-promotion, with attention-seeking, with desiring to let everybody know how great we are. It isn't constantly craving the appraisal and approval of others. It doesn't seek to constantly one-up others to prove its superiority. Has that ever happened to you before? You were sharing something like exciting that's happened in your life, and then someone goes, ah, but something better happened to me. You're like, oh, man. Okay, that, that's the idea. That, that's pride. That's shining the spotlight on self. We need to understand that arrogance is big-headed, But love is big-hearted. That's the difference. And love seeks to promote and advance others, not oneself. It never seeks to usurp its superiority, but rather love seeks to serve. So pride and boasting, it's incompatible with love. But you and I, we can be filled with pride in just about everything. So think about this as individuals. We can be proud about our education, about our job, about our wealth, our material possessions, our abilities and talents, our physical looks, spiritual knowledge, our families, our position, our accomplishments, and the list goes on and on and on. And we use all of these things to to paint a picture of our greatness for the whole world to see. This can also happen within the church as individuals. We desire to be in the spotlight. We want to be up the front so everyone can see us. We can deliberately go go fishing for compliments and praise in order to pump up our self-worth. In our speech, we can swing every conversation back to us. We can feel as though our ministry and contribution is far more important than anyone else and so forth. This can also happen to us collectively. Okay, spiritual pride. We can think that Condal Park is the greatest. We're up here. Everyone else is down here at spiritual elitism, and it's wrong. Okay, we have everything right. Everyone else is wrong. We're more spiritual and godlier than everyone else. Okay, that, that's all pride. And Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount taught about this danger for us as Christians. That the danger of being consumed with pride in our worship and service. He taught very clearly about performing spiritual acts. So so these are things that we do at church in the spirit of pride. We we can serve and minister good things, but we can do it in a boastful fashion where where we're, we're merely trying to draw attention to ourselves. And Jesus used giving, praying, and fasting as three specific examples where we can do these things for show, where, where pride is the motive, it's to make us look good. And what Jesus' teaching reveals is that there is a great danger that, that in our worship, in our service, we can be so filled with pride that, that we can end up doing these things and saying these things to bring the spotlight upon us. Okay? Our worship and service can end up being for self-glory rather than God's glory. That shows the depravity of our hearts. And Jesus says that such teaching will receive, sorry, such behavior will receive an appropriate award. Okay, our ministry and worship will lack power. In fact, it will prove pointless if that's how we act. Pride, boasting, bragging, you're pumping up your own ties, advertising our greatness, that, that's all unloving. It's incompatible with love and these attitudes are so unlike Jesus which leads into the illustration 
Jesus is the greatest example of loving servitude and humility. Consider Philippians chapter 2, that famous portion of scripture, speaking of Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of man, and being found in the fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Glorious passage of scripture. Jesus, he's God. He had every reason to boast, and yet he never did. Okay, isn't that staggering? And the fact that Jesus, that God became man, that's the greatest illustration of humility. Okay, don't let the glory of the incarnation become dim to you. I fear that happens sometimes. We use the word incarnation so often that we forget what Jesus actually did for us. God becoming man, that's amazing. And Jesus, he did not vaunt himself throughout his life. But rather, he was satisfied to serve the sick and the afflicted, help the nobodies of society. Okay, Jesus, he didn't set up a Benny Hinn tent and ask for all the sick to come to make himself look great and then take up an offering. Not at all. Jesus never performed a miracle to put on a show. His ministry was completely free of all pride and boasting. And there is one particular account that illustrates this beautifully. And that is Jesus washing the disciples' feet. On their way to to the upper room for the Last Supper, the disciples, the the thick-headed disciples, are disputing about who is the greatest. Surprise, surprise. So it's about pride and it's about bragging. And each of them had been emphasizing their own claims. You could imagine the conversation. Peter says everything that's good about him, and then James talks, and then John talks. Uh, real, real circus. And then the result was, as they came to the supper room, they took their seats, but no one would stoop down to perform the humble task of foot washing. None of them would be the servant. That was the custom of the time. The servant would perform the foot washing. So Jesus, remember who Jesus is, he's God, takes the towel, takes the water, and he washes the disciples' feet. Stunning humility. God washing feet. And in this deed, we see love in action. Love that doesn't vaunt or puff up itself. Here we have the greatest Stoop down to the lowliest service. And thereby he revealed the true nature of love. Love does not seek to be superior. Love only seeks to serve. When Jesus washed the feet of the disciples, he was setting a deliberate example for us, showing us how to love. True love will serve. And my friend, we need to follow the example of Jesus. And not puff up ourselves, but rather take the position of the humble servant. For that, brethren, is real love. Okay, may you and I, may we be more like Jesus. So some thoughts of application to close. How how can we love in a way that vaunteth not and isn't puffed up? Well, love doesn't brag, but it builds up. Okay, the, the Bible tells us that charity edifieth. 
So we need to not be focused on building up ourselves, but rather building up others. Boasting demands that we take centre stage, but love shines the spotlights on the other actors in life's play. Become a cheerleader for others rather than yourself. This is what love does. It intentionally and purposefully looks for opportunities to cheer for, for others, build up Others encourage, render praise and appreciation. Okay, not flattery, we're not talking about that, but rather focus on others. This, this is love. But, but how do we fight against this pride? Well, let's think of it in the church context again. We've considered we can be proud that we're more spiritual, more gifted, proud of our achievements, and so on and so forth. But this is what we need to remember. We need to remember this, I am what I am by the grace of God. Okay? Every good that we have, any achievement in our life, it comes from the Lord, and therefore there is no reason to be arrogant. So this is where the fight against pride begins. Furthermore, in fighting pride and arrogance, we need to be willing to admit faults. Say you are wrong and humbly apologize, that very quickly deflates pride. I was wrong. I need your help. I am sorry. Okay, they, these all help to deal with pride. A true love is happy to, to be anonymous, to think about this in the church setting. Are, are we happy to serve and never receive any recognition for it? To, to do the things that no one ever knows about. Now, I wonder how often... Okay, we, we are simply doing things so it reflects positively on us. You know, it builds up people's perception of us. Hey, brethren, are we willing to do the jobs that, that nobody knows about? Will you serve even if nobody sees it and there is no recognition because that is real love? Okay, a love that doesn't vaunt and isn't puffed up, it will be like Jesus and it will humbly serve. We will serve others with our words, so by encouraging, by edifying, and we'll serve others with our hands as Jesus did. And there are millions of ways to serve if only we are willing. True love that is free from pride will serve others. Remember Jesus with a towel around his waist washing dirty feet. That's our example. To be willing to be a servant in the home, in the church, and in this world. That is a love that vaunteth not itself, and is not puffed up. Amen. Let's pray. Father, please help us uh, to be more like Jesus. Uh, This is what we need. Help us to meditate deeply on our Savior and his perfect example. For having the mind of Christ is key to fighting both envy and pride, and loving properly. Please change us, we pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen.